This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 72. Power is not the organization's last dirty secret. It is, in fact, the secret to success. None of the stuff we've talked about, getting out of your own way, networking, using your power, none of this is unethical or sleazy in any way. It is what effective leaders do. Effective leaders understand who they are and are willing to lean into their their intelligence and their success and their performance. Effective leaders show up in a powerful fashion. Effective leaders build relationships with other people, understanding that relationships magnify my own capabilities, and by the way, build my own capabilities. Effective leaders understand that they're in a leadership role because their job is to get things done. Their job is not necessarily to win a popularity contest. Why is the single biggest barrier to having power ourselves? How can you, as an HR professional, step into your power? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. This week, I want to take a moment and thank you for being part of the Future of HR community. I continue to be blown away. The podcast has grown so quickly and is making a difference to so many of you. I want to continue that momentum into 2024 and would love your help in doing that. If you're not already subscribed, please be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. Or if you really want to make my day, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. And I would like to hear from you as well. So feel free to find me on LinkedIn, drop me a line if you've got ideas on how to make the future of HR even better, or you just want to say hi. With that, my guest this week is Jeffrey Pfeffer. He's a professor of organizational behavior at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. He's also the author or co-author of 16 books on human capital and management and has published more than 150 articles and book chapters over his career. Jeffrey has won the Richard D. Irvin Award presented by the Academy of Management for Scholarly Contributions to Management. He is in the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame and has been listed as one of the most influential HR international thinkers by HR Magazine. Jeffrey has contributed a lot to our field. and I have been a big fan of his work for a long time. And one area that Jeffrey has done a lot of research and is one of the world's preeminent experts is on power. His latest book, Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career, is one that every HR leader needs to read. He's also got a great podcast called Pfeffer on Power, which is just about to come out for its second season, and I encourage you to check it out as well. I asked Jeffrey to come on the podcast today because, in my experience, there are a lot of misconceptions about power in our field. Jeffrey is here to help set the record straight and tell us what the research says about how to get power, how to keep power, and how to deal with it when you're not in power. And during our conversation, Jeffrey and I are going to discuss why he believes the single biggest barrier to having power is ourselves, why it's important that we own and tell our story, not let others tell it for us, why he believes that being authentic and modest is terrible leadership advice, 
why networking is a superpower and how to do it well, why he believes HR needs to raise the bar and step into their power, and his advice on how to deal with difficult leaders in positions of power as well, and much, much more. Jeffrey, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm wonderful, and it's a pleasure to be on the Future of HR podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And it's so important, I think, for HR leaders to understand not who you are, but your books. You've made immeasurable contributions to our field. But I'm a huge fan of your books, especially the ones around power. And you've actually written 16 books, which is quite an accomplishment. And we're not going through all these books today. But I do love the four books on power. And I'm curious, what led you to focus on the subject of power? And how has your view on power changed over time? Led me to focus on power was pretty much the same thing that leads me to focus on everything I've written about, which is you find a topic that is important and understudied or underwritten about or underappreciated, and you fill the niche very much as you would do for any kind of a product. So I think that's what led me to write about power. Power remains a topic that makes many people, particularly, by the way, HR people, uncomfortable. But it is an element that is omnipresent in organizational life. Some years ago, I went to a talent conference where I gave a talk, learning and development conference. I asked people how many people had trouble retaining a high potential talent because some of that high potential talent had career derailment. Every hand went up. I said, how many of you felt that the number one problem for the career derailment was the fact that people could not manage organizational dynamics? Every hand stayed up. I said, keep your hand up if you do training on organizational power and every hand went down. That is it in a nutshell. We know that many careers derail because of their inability to deal with power and influence in organization. And HR people and learning and development people would nonetheless remain reluctant to lean into the topic of power. So therefore, I do lean into the topic because it is fundamentally important. And how my views have changed is actually not much. Believe it or not, the principles of power, the social psychology that underlies power is essentially unchanged. It is constant across cultures, which many people don't believe. It is also constant across time in large measure because the fundamental psychology of human behavior doesn't change that much. Well, I really appreciate you calling that out because I think I have experienced that, that HR, we are sometimes reluctant to talk about it and we have some fantasies about what power is, how you get it, what great leadership looks like that I would say isn't really what you see in the real world at times. And so that's why I think that's such an important topic. But I do want to just talk about your latest book, which I think is your best one, maybe the most accessible, The Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. What do you hope people take away from that? What made you decide to write that fourth book on power? The third book on power, Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't, was written almost 20 years ago, and I teach an elective on power at Stanford. It is extraordinarily popular. We have a long waiting list, and I teach it on the online, in our online program as well. And through that teaching experience, over time, I have refined my skill or view or some combination of the two in how to get the message across in the most succinct and reasonable way possible. As you know, from reading Seven Rules of Power, the book is filled with examples of women, of African-American women, 
of African-American men, of Asian-American women. One of the ways in which people avoid the topic of power is they say, well, this is a topic that applies only to white men. That is exactly incorrect. I actually have found now that many of my underrepresented minority students, many women will say, we actually need this material more because the privileged white guys are going to succeed anyway. We need to actually even the playing field. And the only way to do that is to understand the rules of the game and understand how to play the game. That's why I've written this book to try to improve the exposition. And I'm glad you think it's the best. <laughs> I do, actually. I've actually read it twice, almost reread it again, preparing for our interview and conversations today. But I think it does level the playing field because when you read this book, and I hope every HR person reads this book, it is very clear that this is how you get power, how you attain it, and how you maintain it. And if you can read the book and not see the world differently, I'll be shocked. But I do think it's important, Jeffrey, that we talk about some of these popular notions, or I would kind of say myths about power and what makes someone an effective leader. In your opinion, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you see? There are many. One is that people ought to be authentic. Authenticity, I think, is much too self-referential and it is much too situationally non-contingent. Authenticity is often defined as being authentic to your own true feelings and desires to, to be true to who you are. You do not need to be true to who you are. You need to be true to what the people around you want and need from you. So if you've had your children have misbehaved, your significant other has dumped you, whatever feelings you're dealing with at the moment, you have to show up as a leader with energy and with focus on the people who expect from you certain behaviors, certain qualities, certain attention to them. My friend Adam Grant, though I think he's probably in the current incarnation of Adam Grant, is probably would walk away from this. But he published a thing in the New York Times, a column entitled, Unless You're Oprah, Be Yourself is Terrible Advice. And I think it's a wonderful column. People should look it up and read it. Authenticity is one thing. I think modesty is another. Jim Collins wrote Good to Great. He talks about level five leaders. There are two things I would point out about that. Number one, many of these level five leaders who, of course, are modest, but with fierce resolve, he doesn't talk about what they did to get to the CEO position. He talks about how they behave once they were in the CEO position. That's number one. And number two, Collins, who's actually endorsed a couple of my books, will point out that out of four, I studied 1,400 leaders, 14, in fact, were level five leaders. So to some extent, he's studying unicorns. You don't want to necessarily give advice to normal people on the basis of something that's extraordinarily rare and unusual. So those are two things that come quickly to mind as ideas that I don't think are very helpful for people. Those are really important misconceptions to think more about. I think the level five leadership one's an insight that most of us kind of walk right past when you think about what that looks like. And it does set this leader up about being empathetic, authentic, et cetera. You focused, not me focused. And the reality is that that's not exactly what our organizations look like. But one of the things I think I wanted to talk about next is, Jeffrey, you said the single biggest barrier to having power is ourselves. And the first rule of power is to get out of our own way. Why is that? And what can we do about this? I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the idea of imposter syndrome. People do not think they deserve to be in the positions that they're in. I think this affects people differentially by gender, whatever. There's kind of a joke, except it's not really a joke because I think there's a reality to it that many women 
if they're offered a promotion, will think whether or not they're qualified. And the men will think, why didn't I get the promotion months ago or years ago? We carry around in our heads ideas that we don't deserve where we are or we're not qualified for certain jobs. One of my good friends is Deborah Liu, who is a senior executive in Facebook. She's now CEO of Ancestry.com, raised as an Asian American woman in the South. She now, of course, lives in Silicon Valley. She was very modest and very self-effacing. She had to learn from her executive coach to get over that, to take credit for what she and her team was doing in Facebook. And she tells an interesting story. She, by the way, wrote a fabulous book, which is a book about telling women to get out of their own way, which is an interesting idea. She ran a project at Facebook that was accounted for about 15% of the company's revenue, but she never really promulgated or promoted that project. Not only didn't she get credit for leading that project, but the team didn't get credit. And all the members of her team therefore left the organization. For the next time she ran a similarly important project, she was much more willing to take credit for both herself and her team to say, look at what we've done and not expect people to necessarily recognize it without her engaging in a certain amount of self-promotion. And I can recall when she would come to my class, we would often have lunch after she came to my class and appeared on a panel with other alums from Stanford. And I would say to her, Deborah, when are you going to be a CEO? And she would say, I'm not sure I'm ready. Then, of course, her executive coach would say the same thing. And finally, she, I guess, decided that she was ready. By the way, the title of her book is Take Back Your Power, which is completely consistent with rule one, to get out of your own way. Take back your power. Don't give it away. I'm thrilled that she has now leaned into her power. And before she took her job, maybe two or three years before, because she's come now for eight or nine or 10 years, I said to her, Deborah, you, of course, are the same person. But as I have watched you show up in this class over the years, you have become more assertive. You speak with more power. Your voice is different. You're, the way you hold yourself is different. You act and behave with a greater level of confidence. I can see your evolution. She comes once a year from year to year to year. We talked about that. She said, when I come to your class to speak, I know I have to put on my A game and I know I have to be better this year than the year before. So actually coming to my class turned out to be a developmental experience. But I think that's an example of how people get in their own way. I'm not deserving of this, not as good as I am. This is a woman who, by the way, has patents. I think we are our biggest barrier. Number one, because we don't think of ourselves as the powerful, successful, accomplished people that we often are. And number two, many of us are not willing to do what is necessary to win in the games of organizations. One of the readings which I assigned to my class is a reading by Sam Borden, which talks about U.S. men's soccer and the wonderful idea that the greatest soccer players are great at drawing fouls. So Cristiano Ronaldo, if you see him play soccer, you, somebody barely bumps into him and he runs, rolls over on the ground and whatever and tries to draw a foul. And the men, U.S. men's soccer team, of course, won't do that because it's beneath them. And of course, therefore, they suffer as a consequence. And so I see many people say, I am not willing to network or I'm not willing to self-promote or I'm not willing to watch Amy Cuddy's YouTube uh, video on power posing and worry about my body language. People should ought to recognize me for the great work that I do. They opt out of the game 
And if you opt out of the game, your odds of winning are zero. So much to unpack there, Jeffrey. But it's so important for HR people because I think when you talked about being uncomfortable with power, a lot of that comes because we are about a support function. We're trying to help the business be better. And we're afraid to say, well, number one, we have imposter syndrome sometimes. We're like, well, we don't have finances, metrics, gap, non-gap, a ledger. We don't have all these tools that the business leaders want to talk about. We're not generating revenue. So we have that imposter syndrome piece. But then second, that modesty of not wanting to say how we're impacting the business and step up has limited us. Now, the successful CHROs, a lot of them have been on my podcast, have stepped in, leaned into their power. And that's why I just love that you hit so many points that I believe it's so critical that HR leaders really start to embrace early in their career to have more impact. And you also talk about in the book the importance of telling your story before someone else does, what this means and how it relates to power. I actually just did a LinkedIn post on this a couple of days ago. So in the last Sunday, New York Times, that would be Sunday, I guess the 22nd, there was a big profile, picture was on the cover of Kamala Harris, the U.S. vice president. It's a sad article. If I were Joe Biden, I would immediately get her off the ticket. Here she is with an opportunity. As you know, Kamala Harris is an extraordinarily accomplished and an extraordinarily intelligent and an extraordinarily interesting human being who I think has done an absolutely abominable job of telling her story. And I don't know why that is or whatever. And here now she is going to be on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And to read this, and I've read it now several times, each time I read it, I get more aggravated because when the interviewer, the guy writing the story, asks her a question, if she does not like the question, she does not do as Donald Trump would do, twist the question to something that she wants to say. She basically ignores the question. She's supposed to do two interviews with him. She never does a second interview. And she misses an incredible opportunity to say who she is, what she's about, talk about her life story as a half Indian, half African-American person, the difficulties she's faced, how that has informed her approach to the world, how this informed whatever. I mean, it's just an opportunity missed. Not everybody is going to have an opportunity to be on the cover of the New York Times Sunday magazine, but all of us have an opportunity to tell who we are. And if you don't tell who you are and don't say what you stand for and what you're about, and how you got to where you are, and what that means in terms of your, if you will, brand, then other people will make that narrative up about you. You have to control the narrative in a variety of different contexts, but it's certainly true about the narrative about yourself. Thank you for that very, very insightful advice. You also talk about rule number five, network relentlessly. Why is networking a power skill and what does it look like in practice? Because so many people are scared to network, right? Oh, it feels kind of creepy and why am I reaching out and it feels fake. But what is really good networking and why is that powerful? I point out to people all the time that if leadership or management is getting things done through other people, the more other people you know, the more you're going to be able to get done. That's why networking is important. Organizations are interdependent systems. In order for HR to get anything done, they often need the collaboration and cooperation of other people, both inside and outside the organization. So the more people you know, the better off you are. I think many people see networking as some kind of selfish activity, but the best networkers are in fact generous because networking is you meet people, the way you build a relationship with them, first of all, let them talk about their favorite subject. 
which is, of course, themselves. But more than that, you connect them with other people who could be useful to them, who can provide them with knowledge or advice or whatever that they would not otherwise have access to. You connect them maybe to books or literature or ideas that they hadn't thought about. That part of building a relationship with someone else is asking the question, how can I be helpful? What do I know that you don't know? Who do I know that you don't know? How can we maybe work together to make each of us more successful? One of my former women students claims that in the organizations in which she worked, the men always get together to help each other's careers and promote each other, and the women don't. She said, I drived her, drove her nuts. It is about mutually supporting people in a variety of ways in terms of careers and in terms of advice and in terms of connecting. And I think, as you mentioned, it's really about helping, yeah. right? And so it's really having that other perspective of where I can be helpful. And, and Angela Lane, who's been on the podcast, calls it being a proactive networker, right? And she talks about the different kinds of networkers. And there's certain people that you only hear from when something bad's happened or they need something, right? Versus the ones that just check in and say, hey, have you seen this great article? Yeah. Right. I think that's so important. It's a really way different to flip it. How do you get to know people to be helpful is very different than I want something taking something from you, like you're giving something back. We all know about the normal reciprocity so that if you're helpful to other people, they will in turn be helpful to you. Really, it's an amazing principle that a lot of people forget about, right? It's one of the most powerful principles in psychology overall. But it's so important. Thank you, Jeffrey. Rule number six is also really interesting. I highlight it because rule number six is use your power. And I believe many HR leaders have more power than they realize, yet we just don't act on it at times. So tell us a little bit more about what does use your power look like? Use your power means that you have a role, you have a job, you have power in order to get things done. To the extent that you're able to get more things done and accomplish more, more people will want to work with you. More people will want to give you resources. More people will ask you to do more things. Somebody the other day said to me, which is, I think, exactly right. One of the principles that Jim Collins talked about is getting the right people on the bus. Yes, that's correct. But to get the right people on the bus, sometimes you have to get the wrong people off the bus. I have a couple of examples in Seven Rules of Power, uh, which talk about this. My colleague, Amir Dan Rubin, now run One Medical. He's about to step down from One Medical. But when I first met Amir, he was running Stanford Hospital and Clinics, which is our medical center, quite a big enterprise. He came in, and this is Stanford. Don't fire anybody. This is California, where we really don't fire anybody. The presumption was everything was going to be the same. But he got there and he said, look, we are underperforming. When he arrived, Stanford Hospital was in the fifth percentile for the emergency department and the 40th percentile for patient satisfaction. That wasn't the biggest problem. The problem is that people didn't seem to care about their low performance. Within three years, 70% of the senior leadership at Stanford Hospital, and we're talking now three levels down, were all changed. Were all changed. And the results of the organization were changed. The point being that Collins is exactly right. You want to have the right people on the bus who have the same time horizon as you, the same ambition is you, the same goals as you, so that you are, to use a word that's used, would be familiar to HR people, aligned. But in order to get people who are aligned, you have to get the people who are unaligned and don't want to get aligned and don't want to play at a high level out. Harris with my friend Gary Lubman 
which then became known as Caesars. And I see this with Amir, and you see this with people all the time, which is if you don't have a high-performing team, you can train and try to develop people, which is a good thing to do. But if they don't want to be trained to develop, you need to get people who are willing to play at a high level. And I find too many leaders being willing to settle for mediocrity. Really good points around that. HR can influence that piece, obviously, or sometimes has the power to help push that over the finish line and really help managers see that gap in performance and talent and then raise that bar, which is so critical. And I think HR, frankly, needs to raise its own bar. There is no reason why HR has to have less power than finance, why HR has to take a backseat to other staff or, for that matter, line functions. Everybody talks about the title of one of my books on HR, Competitive Advantage to People, Building Profits by Putting People First. HR is important in a place in which talent is the key to success. HR has an important role to play, but in order to play that role, they definitely have to lean into their power and they have to hold both themselves and their team accountable to play at a high level. Let's talk more about HR. So I love the point of we need to do better on this area. And I guess, what's the advice you have for HR leaders to have more power and impact? Is there other things we should be thinking about than what you just said? People need to get comfortable with power. One of the things I try to do in my classes, I come in and everybody, of course, has been raised. Many of them have been raised very much like Deborah Liu, not just the people who are Asians or not the people who are Asian women, but I think many people are raised, keep your head down, the world is fair, be modest, whatever. And I think be self-effacing, don't self-promote, whatever. And I think the way you get better at any of this is by practice. One of the things that I try to get our students to do, first of all, we have a lot of executive coaching available in the class, which I think is important. Power is not the organization's last dirty secret. It is, in fact, the secret to success. None of the stuff we've talked about, getting out of your own way, networking, using your power, none of this is unethical or sleazy in any way. It is what effective leaders do. Effective leaders understand who they are and are willing to lean into their their intelligence and their success and their performance. Effective leaders show up in a powerful fashion. Effective leaders build relationships with other people, understanding that relationships magnify my own capabilities and, by the way, build my own capabilities. Effective leaders understand that they're in a leadership role because their job is to get things done. The job is not necessarily to win a popularity contest. My friend Gary Lubman, who went from Harvard Business School to COO of Harris and then CEO of Caesars and then to a senior role at Aetna, and now he's got his own startup, but he has this lovely line. He said, you want to be like a dog. A dog will love you unconditionally. Come home, the dog will jump in your arms, wag his tail. Dog's happy to see you. Your job as a leader is not necessarily to try to win a popularity contest. Your job is to make the difficult decisions to move the organization forward, to make your function and the organization successful. I love that story. I remember that about getting a dog. And that's why I do love my dog. It's unconditional. <laughs> You're right. Jeffrey, I've been neglected. I didn't ask this question because sometimes in HR, we work with very powerful leaders, CEOs, vice presidents, et cetera. And they can be difficult to work with, right? People in power can be difficult at times. And the last rule of power, of course, is that once you have power, the rules don't apply to you as much, right? So if you can see, and we won't go into all the bad behavior we might see in this world, you can if you want to, I will not. But how can HR leaders navigate this type of leader who has power and maybe isn't really playing by rules that we think are fair, nice, et cetera? 
my friend Gary Lubman, who comes to my class, has another saying that I think is exactly right. He came to my class and he said, while you're a student at Stanford, you can afford to not like your classmates. If you don't like them, you don't have to hang out with them. If you don't like them, you don't have to accept them. You don't have to do anything. He said, when you arrive at a senior position in an organization, critical relationships have to work. Critical relationships have to work. It doesn't matter whether you don't like the person, whether you don't respect them, whether you think that the worst thing that ever has happened to the organization, et cetera, as long as they are in that position and you have interdependence with them, they are on your critical path. In order to get stuff done, you have to have a functioning relationship with them. It is your responsibility to build a constructive, positive relationship, regardless of your judgments about them, regardless of the judgments about them. They're in the role. Therefore, you have to make that relationship work. And he gave a lot of examples, which I won't go into, for when he came in to Harrah's and Caesar's. Harrah's was called Harrah's at the time, then it changed his name to Caesar's. What he did to make critical relationships work. But I think his fundamental point is right. If you and I are working together and we're part of the senior team, it doesn't matter what I think about you. As a matter of fact, I ought to probably get rid of those judgments and just ask the father. The only judgment you need to make is, is this someone who's going to be around for a while, whose interactions with me and whose willingness to do what I need them to do are important to my ability to get my job done. And if the answer to that is yes, I have to make that relationship work. For as long as you're there, we have to be able to work together in a constructive fashion. And if you want to see the opposite of that, look at the House Republicans who are voting today for the billionth time to try to get a speaker because they don't understand that critical relationships have to work. They'll figure it out after a while, I think. We certainly hope so. Jeffrey, last question for you. Uh, what is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I never try to predict the future because future predictions tend to be wrong. But the thing that HR most needs in order to be more powerful and more successful is analytical rigor. When I uh, talk to my friend, Laszlo Bach, who was for a while the head of people operations at Google, and then he started this company called Humu, I think this is what he talks a lot about. To some extent, this is what Dave Ulrich has talked about also in terms of getting HR people more measurement oriented, more rigorous, more analytical. Jeffrey, I think we're all more powerful by spending some time with you today. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. It was a blast. Thank you for having me on. Your questions were amazing. I hope my answers are useful to the people who are listening. They certainly will be. I know it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Jeffrey for sharing his insights on power and reminding all HR leaders to step into our power as well. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Carrie Perano, who is the Chief People Officer at Verily, an alphabet company. And as the head of people and culture team, she and her team develop and drive the people strategy in support of the company's purpose, bringing the promise of precision health to everyone every day. Carrie's also a thought leader, and her writings have been featured in a variety of publications, including Diversity Inc., Working Mother Magazine, and Diversity Executive. Carrie was also a contributing author for the Harvard Business Review research report called The Sponsor Effect, Breaking Through the Last Glass Ceiling. And in my conversation with Carrie, we're going to go deep on sponsorship, what it is, 
how to earn it, and why it matters. This was a great conversation on an important topic, one that you won't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.